You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Episode 76 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad that you have joined us today. Pick up any general survey of Christianity in America and turn to the section on the social gospel. It is likely that the narrative will be dominated by two names. Washington Gladden, the pastor of the First Congregational Church in Columbus, Ohio, from 1882 to 1918 and his contemporary, Walter Rauschenbusch, a theologian who taught at Rochester Theological Seminary in New York. Gladden, Rauschenbusch, and lesser-known white social gospel Protestants preached that Christianity, with its otherworldly focus, had failed to address the moral problems facing the United States at the turn of the 20th century. These social gospelers sought to Christianize America through reforms, government programs, and voluntary societies designed to address poverty, disease, immorality, and all forms of injustice resulting from industrialization, urbanization, and immigration. It is highly unlikely that the names Mordecai Johnson, Benjamin Mays, or Howard Thurman, the subject of our episode today, will appear in such a textbook. Yet, according to theologian Gary Dorian in his recent book, Breaking White Supremacy, These leaders of the Black social gospel movement represented an intellectual tradition in American Christianity that was more accomplished and even more influential than the white movement led by Gladden and Rauschenbusch. During the 1930s and early 1940s, Johnson, Mays, and Thurman worked together at Howard University, the country's flagship Black college located in Washington, D.C. Johnson, the president of the university, was deeply influenced by Rauschenbusch's theology and sought to turn Howard into a center of black intellectual life where the social gospel would be applied to the cause of racial injustice. He filled his faculty with like-minded scholars, including Thurman, who served as Howard's chaplain from 1932 to 1944, and Mays, who ran the religion department from 1934 to 1940, until he left to become president of Morehouse College. The troika of Johnson, Thurman, and Mays brought Gandhian non-resistance into the fight for civil rights. Thurman and Mays spent time with Gandhi in India, and Johnson was convinced that Gandhi's non-violent approach to the world represented the essence of true religion. And they were influential in shaping the later activism of Martin Luther King and other members of the early civil rights movement. Our guest today, historian Paul Harvey, is the author of a brand new biography of one of these black social gospel leaders, Howard Thurman. In our current age of racial and social unrest, 
Harvey's study of Thurman helps us think through the way this theologian, writer, activist, and mystic wrestled both intellectually and spiritually with similar problems in an earlier age. Paul will be with us momentarily, but first let's take care of some business. As you may know, the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Ralph Stone, David Plummer, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Bob Beatty, Justin Stoller, Ron Schooler, Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, and Mike Holwick. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this thing going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, or if you like what you read at the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash thewayofimprovement. The best way to spread the word is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter. We are also on Facebook, or you can follow me directly at John Fia one at J-O-H-N-F as in Frank E-A-1. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet, and please consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite podcatcher. Paul Harvey is one of the country's leading scholars on religion and race in American Christianity. He currently serves as distinguished professor of history and presidential teaching scholar at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. He is the author of 13 books, just to name a few of them, Christianity and Race in the American South, a History, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016, Bounds of Their Habitation, Religion and Race in American History, Roman and Littlefield, 2017. Also with Roman Littlefield, he published Through the Storm, Through the Night, A History of African-American Christianity. That appeared in 2011. He is the author of Redeeming the South, Religious Cultures and Racial Identities Among Southern Baptists, 1865 to 1925. That was published in 1997 with the University of North Carolina Press. And in 2005, Harvey published Freedom's Coming, Religious Cultures and the Shaping of the South from the Civil War through the Civil Rights Era. Our interview today is based on his current book, Howard Thurman and the Disinherited, a religious biography published in 2020 with Erdman's Publishing. Our guest today is Paul Harvey professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, author of a brand new biography of Howard Thurman with the Erdman's Religious Biography Series. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So how'd you get interested in Thurman? Uh, like most people, I was familiar with Thurman from his book, Jesus and the Disinherited from 1949, which I had researched for another class, uh, another book rather. 
And then um, I, some years ago, I was invited to do some lectures on Southern religion, and I wanted to write a little bit more about him. And that got me to starting reading his papers, which are published in five volumes, and some of his other sermons and things like that. And then I thought, gosh, I wonder if there's a biography of him, and there wasn't, at least a contemporary biography. And then I started reading his autobiography, and he talks about going to uh, San Francisco for the first time and feeling immediately at home. That's, a, that's an experience that I had in my life going to graduate school, actually. And I thought, okay, I, I have to write this. I don't know why. I just, I just felt called to use a religious language. I felt called to write it. Are his papers public? Who, who is the publisher of his Yeah, so University of South Carolina Press published them. So he has about 120 boxes of material at the Boston University Special Collections Library. That's their largest collection, I think. A select portion of those papers are published now in these five volumes of the papers of Howard Washington Thurman. And so that bulk of this book is based on those published papers. That's what I read. In fact, the last volume of that series was just published last, literally last year. I was waiting for it to be finished so I could finish writing my book. As a matter of fact, I also went to Boston and researched in his papers on some things that weren't published. And then he has a whole lot of sermons and speeches and addresses that are, there's two volumes of them that have been previously published. And they're just about to start a series of his unpublished sermons that come out of these handwritten sermons in his papers. First one, I think, was just published. And there's going to be, I think, two or three others in the near future. Before we came on the podcast, I said, let's try to talk like for a general audience. And now I'm going to ask you a question about sort of getting into the scholarly weeds a little bit here. This guy, Peter Eisenstadt, what is yeah. his? What is his? He's a biographer of Thurman? Yeah, he's a biographer. He was the editor, the primary associate editor of the Thurman papers for, I don't know, 15 years or so. Is he the same guy who used to be like an early Americanist? Yeah, he wrote about New York history. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, same guy, same guy. He wrote a, again, we're in the weeds now already, but he wrote, <laughs> a, he wrote, it was an important piece for me in grad school. I co-authored a piece in the William and Mary Quarterly with Patricia Bonamy on like how many people attended church on a regular basis. Oh, and, uh, okay. Yeah, he, so it's the same guy. Oh, I didn't even know that about that. I knew about some of his other books. About yeah, he like history. wrote this piece where he kind of challenged uh, John Butler's view of, uh-huh. you know, church going and stuff. And, oh, okay. um, and then he wrote about the Dutch. Yeah, I think he was like somehow affiliated with the papers of... Uh, the New Netherland papers at Albany or something like that. Okay. I didn't know that. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I was wondering, it has to be the same guy. It's just yeah, not, yeah, you know, how many guy. historians have that. Yeah, he name. told me that he couldn't find an academic job and then he ended up with this job as the editor yeah. of the Thurman papers, which was it's headed up by a guy named Walter Fluker, who was a, a friend of Thurman's late in Thurman's life. Okay. And uh, Fluker basically organized the, and raised money for this entire project. But Peter did most of the kind of grunt work. Okay. Um, so he knows Thurman better than anybody else yeah. alive, including me. Yeah. So just for the listeners out there, I think recently somebody said to me they like this podcast because they feel like they're sitting in the faculty lounge listening to conversations. And I said, no, no, we're not. We're trying to put this out for public for public consumption. Well, now here we are, right? In the faculty yeah. lounge. There's a, little, there's a little academic gossip for you. Yeah, right, right. So talk about Thurman, you know, like, who was Thurman? Just give me like a, you know, I often say this, you're on an elevator going up to the 30th floor yeah. of some skyscraper, and someone says, like, you wrote a biography of Thurman. Who was he? So uh, Howard Thurman was a, 
I would call him a religious philosopher primarily and a minister and a Unitarian in terms of his beliefs and someone who started one of the first explicitly interracial churches in America and a founding philosopher of the ideas of nonviolent civil disobedience that became part of the civil rights movement and a mentor to many, many people who went on to distinguished careers uh, in all kinds of different endeavors who were his disciples, particularly later in his life. And the dean of the chapel, first at Howard University in the 1930s and 40s, and then later, later at Boston University, the first African-American dean of a chapel, as a matter of fact, in the United States at Boston University from 1953 to, to 1965. So he has a career that goes over many different uh, fields of endeavor, but all of those fields of endeavor involved talking about religion and religious philosophy to yeah. other people in some way. Tell me about, you know, his early years, who were some of his kind of intellectual, maybe spiritual, religious influences? Yeah, so the first one you have to point to is his grandmother, because that's who he points uh -huh. to, and it's a, it's a story that he tells over and over and over again in his life, that his grandmother, who was a slave, told a story of the slave preacher saying, you are not blank, Negroes, but the, the bad word for that, uh, you're God's children. And that, that, was, that was something that she told with such fervor that Howard Thurman remembered it and told it the rest of his life because it became foundational to his philosophy. And then some of his other major influences came out of his years as a Morehouse student. Morehouse is the black college in Atlanta, Georgia, kind of the, the most prestigious college for black men in Atlanta, Georgia, which he attended from 1919 to 1923. And he had a number of professors there. Benjamin Mays was one of them. There's a great biography of Benjamin Mays by Randall Jelks. It's called a Randall Jelks. And then later, he studied with Rufus Jones, who was a, a white Quaker from Haverford College. And Thurman just got this idea in 1929 that he just had to go study with Rufus Jones. So he basically pulled up roots and moved to Philadelphia for half of that year to study with uh, Rufus Jones. And he also, he sort of absorbed influences from everyone, everyone from W.E.B. Du Bois to Reinhold Niebuhr to all, um, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, who was the president of Howard University for many years and was a great influence of Thurman when, when he was younger. And a number of other um, white uh, religious philosophers that he was very close to. He went to the Baptist Seminary in uh, Rochester, New York, uh, for three years, 1923 to 26. And one of his professors there actually told him, Howard, you should not, basically he said, you should not spend your life on racial issues. You should, you should um, address timeless issues of the human spirit. And the irony is Thurman was mad about that because he said, he, this professor didn't understand that you can't separate a black skin and timeless issues of the human spirit. Those two things go yeah. together in American society. But actually what Thurman did in his life was he really did focus on timeless issues of the human spirit. He actually really did follow that advice, despite his disavowal of it at the time. So your kind of biography here is part of this Erdman series uh, on religious biography. Would there be, like if you weren't writing a religious biography of Thurman, like what, would there be other things to talk about? I mean, he was a religious figure, right? Yeah, you have to write a religious biography of yeah, Thurman. Exactly. That's, that's his whole life. He, in fact, said yeah. about himself, I've strived my whole life to be a religious man, and I've right. fallen short, but that's my goal. So you can't, 
you can't not write a religious biography. However, there's a number of aspects of his life that I discussed only briefly, uh, and his other biographer, Peter Eisenstadt, talks about in much more length than I do, particularly his uh, political affiliations in California, things like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I was really taken by the Rufus Jones story. I mean, that, that's, you know, it's, we don't do that anymore. I, I, I don't know, yeah. you call someone up and say, hey, I want to come study with you for six months and just follow you around and learn from yeah. you, right? The, the irony no was there were, there were no black students at Haverford. Yeah. So he couldn't actually go there as a student. <laughs> he just yeah. went there as a, as a kind of private yeah. uh, private mentee of, of Rufus Jones. Well, I'm sure there's... A, people who would like to hang out with Paul Harvey, right, for, uh, for a semester. <laughs> Give me a call if you want to. Actually, I've, I've, had a, I've had a couple of Chinese students come here, and they've they basically done that. They came here to oh, – I, spon cool. I sponsored them because they need, they need a sponsor for a visa, but yeah. they weren't – they were a, a visiting scholar allegedly studying under me, but I just – they right. weren't studying under me. They just came here to do work, and right. I just helped them with the, the bureaucratic right. side of it, and I've been blessed with that, those experiences. So Thurman really kind of comes into his own as a public figure, right? When he gets to Howard University yeah. uh, in the 1930s. I'm, I'm really taken by Howard during those years because you had um, Mays was there too, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, Mordecai Johnson was the president. And you mentioned in the book that Johnson wanted to create this kind of center of black intellectual life at Howard, you know, you know, tell me a little bit about, I'm really interested in these kinds of places, these kinds of, you know, visions that people have for institutions of higher learning, you know, and, and so I'm attracted to this idea of, of Howard being this kind of center of black intellectual life. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I described Mordecai Wyatt Johnson as a kind of intellectual autocrat, but a very good one. Yeah. I think Dorian, Dorian describes yeah. him as a real kind of, you know, tyrant in some ways. Yeah, yeah, he was a tyrant in some yeah, ways. A, yeah. a lot of a lot of black college presidents were like that at the time. They kind right. of had to be. There were there was yeah. much choice really. But no, Mordecai White Johnson really wanted to build a place at Howard that would be kind of like I don't know, like Notre Dame is for for American Catholics. Howard would be that for for yeah. black Americans, kind of the center. And he actually did that in many ways. The thing is, when Howard Thurman went there in 1932. There was a religion department at Howard, but it was not much. <laughs> there wasn't much there, really. And so he was part of a group of younger scholars who were hired to create a real intellectual center of the study of religion. And they did that. They did a very good job of that. And so Howard Thurman went there to Howard University to be the dean of the chapel, Rankin Chapel. And he, he became a national celebrity, mostly through his sermons at Rankin Chapel, because they attracted all kinds of people who went on to important careers, Barbara Jordan, for example, later the congresswoman from Georgia, and uh, James Farmer, who was one of the founders of the Congress of Racial Equality, and uh, Polly Murray, in mm. fact, very, very important figure in African-American history who's only recently been discovered. So he had this group of amazing students who all looked to him as kind of this voice, this icon of religious wisdom that they really wanted to understand. Howard's sermons were um, a little abstract, I guess you might say. They didn't often talk about things of everyday life. They were really kind of philosophical manifestos. And James Farmer famously said, we all sat in the audience, and if we ever felt like we understood deeply 
one thing that he said, we just were like floating on air, leaving the chapel <laughs> because that was our, that, that was our goal was to really understand what the great Howard Thurman was saying. And it was not, uh, not an easy thing to do all the time. So Howard Thurman was there along with uh, great sociologists, historians, Rayford Logan, the historian, uh, and the legal scholar Charles Hamilton Houston was at Howard during that time. Charles Hamilton Houston trained Thurgood Marshall and all of the basically all of the lawyers who were involved with the Brown versus Board decision later were trained under Charles Hamilton Houston, who ran a famously rigorous law school at Howard and basically would not tolerate anything other than absolute excellence among his students. Yeah, yeah. So the, you know, Mays ran the religion department, right? I think, right? Thurman was the chapel. To what extent was this kind of intellectual project that they were trying to create at Howard a religious project. I mean, and you just mentioned towards the end there, some of the legal scholars and so forth, which may have kind of, you know, kind of undermined that question. It was not a religious project, actually. It was a intellectual project and any great university should have a great department of religion. Uh, So interestingly, when Howard Thurman was hired, the person who hired him, an administrator, whose name I can't remember now, wrote him a, a hiring contract letter, which basically said, you are to teach the truth as you see it. But keep in mind, please, that we have a lot of students coming from basically fundamentalist yeah. uh, backgrounds. And like, don't don't hit them over the head too hard. <laughs> Bring them into thoughts of modernism gently, uh, because we can't we can't afford to lose these students, basically. But your job is to teach them truth. And Howard Thurman was definitely a modernist, absolutely so, and never made any pre- pretense otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, and when you say modernist, you're talking about just for our listeners, modernists in terms of you know the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were fundamentalists. So Thurman goes to you know you have this really half a chapter in the book about Thurman's trip to to India in the mid 30s, and it's a it's a really transformative moment for yeah. him on a lot of fronts. It sounds like you know. Tell us a little bit about you know, how that trip kind of shaped his intellectual life, his thinking about things, his, um, you know, his approach to activism. Yeah. So let me say first, uh, there's a half chapter in my book. There's a whole book just about this trip called Visions of a Better World by Peter Eisenstadt and Quentin Dixie, published in about 2013, I think, by Beacon Press. Wonderful, wonderful book with much more detail than I had room to go into. So let me just recommend the readers to that. Uh, But the idea of Thurman was... Uh, he was going on a kind of religious pilgrimage, Thurman and his wife, Subeli Thurman, and then another couple, Edwin Carroll and um, Finola Carroll, uh, who were kind of uh, associates of, of Thurman and other people. And their job was basically to travel around India and to engage in religious dialogues. They were brought there by an Indian um, Christian uh, group. Uh, kind of an international Christian student movement uh, type group. But Thurman was very resistant to the idea that he would serve as a kind of missionary or that he would evangelize or that he was there to spread the Christian faith. He really uh, tried to stay away from that. And his vision of himself was someone who was there to engage in interreligious dialogues with people of all faiths in India. So if I remember correctly, this this organization was connected to the YMCA. Yes, it was. Right, right. So it had a... So it had a 
you know, he, he really did resist. Like we are not here, you know, th- and, and were they evangelicals who he was with of some type, you know, some, and- some, some were, some weren't. In fact, okay. it's interesting. It's called the, there's a, there's a uh, movement at the time called the SCM, the student Christian movement. Right. And then the, there's, there's versions of it internationally called the international student Christian movement. So this guy named Rala Ram, who was involved with the ICSM in India was the one who invited him originally. And Rala Ram, I would say, was a kind of moderate uh, evangelical Christian, but others, his, his, his audience has consisted of people of all types. But one thing that's interesting in his notes about his journey is Indians wanted to hear the spirituals sung, and Howard Thurman didn't want to do that. <laughs> he absolutely did not want to do that, because it, it was he saw that as a kind of a, a minstrel show, in effect, for uh, these Indians. But his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, was in fact a music student and was a very skilled uh, musician. And so she would sometimes sing a, a spiritual or two. And at the end of the trip, when they met with Gandhi, what did he do? He asked them to sing a spiritual. <laughs> so what are you going to say no to Gandhi? So of course they they sang a spiritual um, for for Gandhi at the at the end of their of their meeting in February of 1936. But along the way, Thurman was also challenged by people who are not Christians or people who are Muslims basically asking him, look at everything Christianity has done in Western society, and you are here in effect representing Western Christianity. How can you possibly justify that? And Thurman spent his whole life thinking about that exact question. He spent his whole life trying to answer what does Christianity have to say to people whose backs are against the wall? That's the fundamental question that his life was about, I think. How about the uh, sort of influence of Gandhi in terms of nonviolence? Yeah, so they had the, they had this uh, famous meeting in uh, February 1936, and, and Thurman was among, he wasn't the only person, but he was one of the first people who were trying to figure out if Gandhi's ideas uh, could be applied to um, up to blacks in America. So here was Gandhi leading this this gigantic crusade against British imperialism, and Thurman later writes, uh, and Howard and Martin Luther King picks up on this. Look at what this one person did to bring down this fundamental part of the British Empire without firing a shot. Um, and so they're thinking about that in the 1930s. So they have this dialogue. It's very interesting at the end of this dialogue because Thurman is completely enraptured with Gandhi, absolutely enraptured. Yeah. Sue Bailey Thurman, a little less so, because she asks him, if my brother is lynched, what am I to do? Just sit there and watch it? Yeah. Right. And uh, Gandhi basically says, no, the thing is, you have to simply disassociate yourselves with all evil. So you break off all contact with uh, evildoers of that sort. And Sue Bailey Thurman was like, uh, that's not so easy to do <laughs> as a black American. You can't just do that uh, because, you you know, you're going to be employed by these people and so forth. So the Thurmans collectively are engaged in the process of figuring out what of Gandhi's philosophy can be applied to the struggle for, for justice in North America. And some of it can and some of it can't. And they have to figure out what's in the can category and what's in the can't category. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. Um, you, know, you mentioned, I think, in one point, it's kind of a passing comment that Sue Bailey Thurman needs a biography. Uh, she, yeah. she appears a lot. Of, she appears several times. Um, well, let's start with her. She's an important part of the narrative uh, yeah. that you tell. Um, this is this is Thurman's, I believe it's his second wife. Second right? wife, that's right. And um, 
you know, who was she? Who is, I mean, we've heard a little bit about her. She was a musician. She, she struggled with nonviolence, but, but she was also somewhat of a historian, right? She was a historian, basically at heart. She was a historian. Yeah. So uh, Howard Thurman was married uh, the first time, 1926 to 29, to Katie Kelly, his wife Thurman. And that, uh, his first wife worked in tuberculosis stricken neighborhoods of Atlanta and she caught tuberculosis and she died. A uh, great tragic story of, of Howard Thurman's life. And a couple of years later, so Howard Thurman and Sue Bailey Thurman, Sue Bailey at the time, were actually together at um, Morehouse and Spellman in the early 1920s. They didn't know each other. But Sue Bailey Thurman was the roommate of Martin Luther King's mother at Spellman College, which is the black female college, kind of a counterpoint to uh, Morehouse in Atlanta. Sue Bailey Thurman later went on uh, to New York, became an organizer for the NAACP, comes back to Spelman in the 1930s and is introduced again to Howard Thurman. So and their friends basically kind of set them up because they see them as a great match and they this, this immediately takes off in 1930 and they're married in 1932. Uh, so Sue Bailey Thurman says later that it was remarkable to her that she was the feminine version and Howard the masculine version of the same idea. And they really did seem to have this amazing partnership through their life. Now, what was their relationship like personally? We don't know because they destroyed a lot of their personal correspondence. And that's also the reason that there should be a biography of Sue Bailey Thurman, but there probably can't be because there's not enough papers left of her probably to do that. But her public uh, work, those papers certainly exist. And much of her public work involved trying to collect documents of African-American history, which simply were not uh, collected at the time. Uh, and later on, when they're living in Boston, for example, she creates, um, there's of course the Freedom Trail that you can go and look at all this, you know, the revolutionary era stuff in Boston. And Sue Bailey Thurman wanted there to be an African-American Freedom Trail. And she created that uh, in, the, in the Beacon Hill uh, region of Boston. You can go and, and follow that trail today. And it, it's incredible everything that you see along the way. I had I did this last year and I was astonished because I there were some people who lived in Boston that I didn't even realize lived in Boston. Yeah. Very important figures of early African-American history. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, this person lived here. And I'd forgotten David Walker lived there. David Walker was a famous yeah. uh, anti-slavery pamphletist uh, from that era. And you go by his house. So anyway, she also publishes a book called Negro Pioneers of California. And she also publishes a book, uh, I forgot the title, but it's basically a, a, a Negro history cookbook. One of the first um, uh, popularly distributed black cookbooks in 20th century America. So her life is just astonishing, really. That is, that is. Yeah, I knew nothing about her until I read your book. Yeah, um, the other thing I would say about her is she had a, she was a very extroverted person. Howard was a very introverted person. And she, I think she really helped him come out of his shell that he, he liked to retreat into his shell. And I think she wouldn't let him do that a lot of times. So they, they made a good uh, partnership in that regard as well. Let me, let me ask you, this might be a little complicated, this que next question, but um, it struck me as I was reading it. I'm trying to figure out, you know, you have this, you have this wonderful point. I was like putting exclamation points in the margin of the book as I was reading. On page 94, you, you make this point that I think is important, especially even in our own kind of racial uh, unrest in the country. Now you say, 
you know, the pursuit of individual righteousness would, this is, you know, quote, the pursuit of individual righteousness would not be sufficient to ensure tro- social transformation, unquote. You're, you're paraphrasing or summarizing Thurman yeah. there. Um, and, you know, I see, you see this a lot. You hear this, especially from kind of evangelical preachers, especially over the summer, right? If we just, we just get more people saved or, you know, yeah. if, we just, if we just make more people love God more, um, the racial issues and the social problems will all disappear. And, and I think Thurman rejected that idea, but yet at the same time, you know, you describe him as a mystic and maybe yeah. you can talk about how you use that term mystic, but, but, you know, he also did believe that something interior, right. A spiritual, yeah. spiritual yeah. connection of some type would is the sort of starting point for for social justice and social activism in the world. So maybe you can like unpack that a little bit for for me and for the listeners. Yeah. So if you can think of uh, someone who would combine the uh, a kind of message of a uh, a contemporary seeker, right? Someone who yeah. looks after religious truth in their own way, and then someone who has a religious vision of social activism. Yeah. Uh, and if you put those two things together, those are often embodied in separate people. Uh, and Thurman really, his one of his life visions is really to try to put those together. So, uh, yes, he does not think that some sort of magical individual salvation is going to uh, suffice to deal with injustice in the world. That's a point made by other people as well. Right. Uh, Martin Luther King obviously makes that point. But he also doesn't think that simply attending to social justice without a serious contemplative meditative life where you try to encounter religious truth directly. That's what he means by mysticism, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that That is also necessary because that's the very thing that fuels your ability to engage in movements of social justice without succumbing to the hatred that you will be subjected to. For example, that civil rights movement people were subjected to. So you can obviously understand why a Martin Luther King would pick up on this idea. So some of Martin Luther King's sermons from the 1950s are more or less plagiarized directly out of out of Thurman's uh, messages, sometimes word for word, as a matter of fact, and basically saying exactly the same kind of thing. He would probably put more emphasis on the social justice part of it, but the social justice emerges from the person who has gone through what Howard Thurman called the inward journey to see uh, what was necessary to produce a just society. And it was Thurman's, this kind of, whether it was directly Thurman or not, but it was this kind of connection between mysticism and activism, spirituality and activism that really took on uh, during the civil rights movement, right? Took on some kind of an institutional framework as, yeah. these, you know, at these schools in Nashville, you know, you know, Rosa Parks attended and John Perkins was involved. And, you know, I remember taking a civil rights bus journey, bus yeah. tour uh, two or three years ago, four years ago now, maybe. And, you know, talking to the vet, some of the veterans of like the lunch counter protests, the mm-hmm. integration, you know, these, you know, down their 70s, 80s, you know, they're talking about kind of the spiritual dis, maybe discipline's not the right word, but this kind of spiritual training they needed to be able to not push back or fight back when they're getting ketchup dumped on their head or yeah, whatever, exactly, right? Exactly. So is that similar to this kind? Is that the kind of idea? That's exactly the idea. That, that's exactly the internal spiritual discipline that's necessary 
to not succumb to the forces of hatred that are trying to overwhelm you. So you don't just throw somebody out there, right? No, you don't just you don't just throw somebody out there. They have to be yeah. mentally, spiritually prepared and disciplined. Uh, and in some ways, what they did at these training seminars in Nashville and so forth was they they were putting in a in a kind of practical way they were putting into practice the ideas of Thurman. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Thurman leaves, if I got my dates correct here, Thurman leaves Howard in 1944. Yeah. And he moves to San Francisco. Now, you've already mentioned this, but uh, I'd like to know more. He starts one of the first uh, interracial churches in Mm -hmm. uh, the United States. Tell us a little bit more about that. Not only, you know, what he was kind of trying to create there, but, you know, he obviously faces some challenges too with this. Uh, yeah. 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 So uh, there's, a, there's a guy named Albert Fisk, who's a white uh, Presbyterian minister and a professor of philosophy at San Francisco State College at the time. And uh, he, he wants to start this church. So he writes to Howard Thurman. He says, hey, um, do you have any interns or someone? Maybe you could come and spend a summer out here and work for this church. Uh, cause I, I, it needs to be an intern cause I really can't pay them anything at the moment. And, uh, Thurman suggest, kind of suggests a couple of people, but they're not really interested. And, but Thurman actually has himself in mind because he, he catches this vision. Like, this is the thing, the thing I was struggling with in India, you know, can we put into practice a Christianity that is shorn of the institutional practices of American Christianity? This is the project of my lifetime. So he decides to do it for himself. And it's amazing because he's this star celebrity professor at Howard and he moves to San Francisco where there's basically nothing there. He has no salary, for example, but typical of Howard Thurman, he just, when he gets a vision, he just has to follow it no matter what it is. So they, they sort of co-pastor this church for a couple of years. Eventually the first guy, Alfred Frisk, uh, decides to move on because he, I think he recognizes that Thurman is really the star. And when pe- people go to church there to hear him, they're not coming to church to hear Alfred Fisk. And Fisk kind of knows that. So he, he moves on. But one of the difficulties is it's kind of partly funded by the Presbyterian Church as a kind of mission project. But Thurman doesn't want it to be affiliated with the Presbyterian Church because he wants what the name of the church is the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples. Right. So he doesn't really want a Christian church, exactly. He wants a church in which people of various faiths can come and experience God together. And of course, that's not an easy thing to pull off, never mind it being interracial as well. So it's a it's a great challenge that he puts himself to. I should say he, he moves there, of course, during World War II, during Japanese internment. One of the first things this church does is they begin to welcome back returnees from the Japanese internment camps in 1945. And there's a lot of Japanese Americans who become involved with this church as a result of that. Um, so it, it really is an interracial church. And Thurman loved San Francisco as a city. He, it, it was his home, really, spiritual home, in part because of its diversity of people. So Thurman, you know, just to kind of put him in kind of a different world than our current kind of moment, right? I mean, for some at least, you know, he wasn't a separatist in any way, right? He was all about kind of bringing um, white, black, Japanese, so forth together around around the, I don't know, I don't know even what, you know, his message or the gospel or, yeah. Yeah. So it's so interesting because he spent his life prior to this time, he spent his entire life in black institutions at right. Morehouse College, at Howard University, 
uh, dean of the chapel there and so forth. Um, and he, he had a great respect for the both the need and the functions fulfilled by those kinds of black institutions. But he just saw himself personally as having a different call, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think Thurman is best known for his, uh, is it 49, his book? Yeah, 49. That's um, right his book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, mm -hmm. right? And if you borrow this, this word to disinherited in your title, um, you know, what, what is, what is that? I mean, this is his kind of, you know, would you say this is his whatever magnum opus or his most important work? Yeah, it's his most important work. Thurman Thur was not an author, sort of, yeah. I mean, he authored 23 books or so, but he was not an author kind of by trade and it wasn't his primary thing. Um, yeah. He was a sermonizer. He was a great, uh, person to give sermons, and that—that's really where he excelled. And he published them, and and yeah, here and there, and yeah, yeah, and a, a lot of the, a lot of his books are basically compilations of the yeah. sermons. Jesus and the Disinherited was different because it started as a series of academic lectures that he gave, and a few years before, I forgot what year exactly, uh, forty-seven, I think, something like that. Um, but he really uh, developed in full the ideas that he had played with for most of his life, which is. If we take the idea that Jesus was a dispossessed Palestinian Jew who confronted the great power of his day, what does that mean for the meaning of Jesus for us? And that that's basically what the book is about. And the thing that makes it a classic is that it has its ethereal passages as his other books do, but it's also a very gritty book. It's a very real book. It, more so than some of his other works, which I think is what makes it rise above some of his other works. It, it combines the the struggles of everyday life with the kind of more highfalutin religious philosophy expressed within it. Yeah, actually, after I finished your book uh, the other day, I actually ordered a copy. I have never read it, so I actually ordered a copy. Um, yeah, inspired me to read it. For your um, listeners out there, it's a short book. It's only like yeah. 100 pages. It won't take yeah. you long to read. Um, is it a book about race or is it a, is this kind of, you know, a message for all followers typical, of Jesus or? Yeah, it is for everyone. Typical of Thurman is not about race, but it is about race. Right, right. <laughs> it's not about race explicitly. He does have a few passages actually about one of them. I quoted in another book of mine that uh, Jesus is imaged as a kind of, as a kind of a divine white father sitting on this throne and uh, everything that's white is associated with holiness and everything that's black is associated yeah. with devilry. That's a common theme of much black theology dating from the 19th century. And Thurman picks up on that. But it's more about that question. What does Christianity have to say to people whose backs are against the wall? Yeah. Again, he comes back to that question through his entire life. And the book, yeah. Jesus and the Disinherited, is his best attempt to answer that. I don't know if you can answer this question, Paul. I didn't kind of prep you for it, but you know, I, I teach uh, twice a year. I teach, um, you know, Frederick Douglass, and mm -hmm. you know, he has this, you know, he has this argument in, in several things that he writes about sort of separating Christianity or the true teachings yeah. of Jesus, right? True Christianity from the Christianity of right. the South, or right? Did Thurman read Douglas? Was there any? I mean, maybe maybe Douglas wasn't being published as much when Thurman was writing. I don't know, but any kind of no, he did. There? He read Douglas. He no, did. Yeah, oh. yeah absolutely. Um, I mean, it wasn't central to his thought, but he, he yeah. did. Thurman was really well versed in African American history. He read, for example, I was reading a sermon of his from 1936, and he's talking about 
W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. That's a, yeah. a famous book now in American right. history, but no historians paid any attention to it. Yeah. The only people who paid any attention to it are black people. Yeah. Um, and But Thurman knew that book immediately, and he had completely, it's a long, complex book, and he had completely assimilated its argument. And his vision of Reconstruction was, as a result, 50 years ahead of his time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he, knew all the, he knew all these 19th century figures like Douglas. He knew them very, very well. Yeah, interesting. We'd be remiss if we didn't at least talk a little bit here. Our time's running out, but um, on you know Thurman's influence on both Martin Luther King, but then also the civil rights movement uh, as a whole. I mean, where do you, you know, I, I know that's another whole book, right? But, yeah. but how do you answer that in a you know a kind of little couple minute response? Yeah, in a nutshell, they they were not close personal friends, but. King's ideas were fundamentally grounded in Thurman's ideas. He had completely assimilated Thurman's ideas, and he reproduced those ideas in many of his sermons. And they, they did have some correspondence along the way. It's, their correspondence is quite funny because they're, they're both harassed, busy people, and they're, they're constantly trying to meet up, and like one's going to preach at the other person's church or chapel, and they, they can never pull it off, right, because they're, they're too busy. So they actually never meet uh, after, I think, 1958 again. But Thurman is at the 1963 uh, March on Washington, as a matter of fact, but he's not there as like a, as a uh, participant, um, as a leader, or as a celebrity. He's just there because he wanted to go as yeah, an individual. Yeah. He considers that day like the, that's, that's sort of the day that best represents his vision of what a, a society of social justice would look like. Yeah. He's absolutely enthralled by the whole experience. Just to follow up on that, Thurman, so we didn't, we didn't get to this, but Thurman's, uh, you know, spends sort of the last part of his professional life um, as the chaplain, you mentioned this, at Boston University. And he's there when King is a doctoral student, right? Right, for one year, for the first year of King's. And they didn't really know each other. They didn't really know each other. Or excuse me, the last year of King's uh, doctoral student. They spent one day together. They were watching Jackie Robinson play in the World Series on television. <laughs> That's amazing. Mostly what he remembers is they were, they're talking baseball. And they, of course, they love Jackie Robinson. So that's what they were talking about. One more kind of fun question here for you, Paul. I follow you on Twitter. And I loved your tweet on November 8th. You tweeted... Quote, Kamala Harris, intellectual descendant of Howard Thurman. Explain that tweet for us, Paul. Yeah. So long story short, Howard Thurman trained the person who trained the person who trained Kamala Harris. And what I mean is that uh, one of Thurman's students at Howard, Wilson Goodlett, in the 1930s, was actually a, an intern in the chapel and was a devotee of Thurman's. Uh, later moves to San Francisco, creates a chain of black newspapers in the Bay Area, San Francisco. He's also a physician, I should say. And later when Howard Thurman moves to San Francisco, he's Howard Thurman's physician. But he becomes the mentor to Willie Brown, the uh, rather well-known California African-American politician, Speaker of the House of Representatives in California, and uh, uh, mayor of San Francisco for a while. And Willie Brown then trains a young Kamala Harris in the arts of politics. So in that sense, she is the intellectual descendant of Howard Thurman. So there is the connection. We are, I should actually say we are recording this episode on November 16th, uh, 13 days after Kamala Harris became, I guess it's not formally officially because the Electoral College hasn't acted, but the vice president-elect yes. of the United States. And there is a Howard Thurman connection there. 
Our guest today has been Paul Harvey. He's the author of Howard Thurman and the Disinherited, a religious biography published in 2020 by Erdman's. Paul, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us. Very glad to do it. Thank you so much, John. All right. Have a great day. to talk to Paul Harvey. Very few people know as much about race and religion in U.S. history. And Paul, uh, he's a very humble guy, but first-rate scholar, uh, probably one of the most important scholars in this field of this generation. You know, really, you know, if you want an introduction to Thurman, you know, it's, you know, maybe about 200 pages. It's a quick read. I read it in a couple of days. You know, it's a page turner. You know, if you enjoy theology, African-American history, intellectual history, history of race relations in the United States, uh, this is really a book to go out and get with Erdman's. One of the things that, you know, I think Paul teaches us is that there are these lesser known figures that contributed to civil rights in America. Thurman, as I said in the introduction to the podcast, really represents the generation before Martin Luther King and the rest, John Lewis and so forth, and the rest of the civil rights leaders that we often talk about when we talk about the fight against Jim Crow in the United States. Thurman is fascinating. I said in the interview, I'm really looking forward to reading the Jesus and the Disinherited. You know, but again, start with Harvey's biography uh, and then you know, see where that takes you. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was recorded to you via Zoom. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guests. Our studio producer is me, Casey Lehman. And your host, as always, is John Fia. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.